Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Skip Morris, and he'll be answering your questions on 500 Trout Streams, his latest book. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Skip a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Look in the right column of any page of our website, and you'll see a form to sign up. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcasting is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You'll also be able to find it on any of the podcast distribution sites, like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. We've got some buttons on our homepage that allow you to share the knowledge, so we truly appreciate it. I also want to let you know tonight about a new social media app that I will be using for conversations on fly fishing. It's called Clubhouse. I will be hosting a room on Clubhouse every Thursday at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Clubhouse is like a conference call where people can talk with each other live, ask questions, and have discussions. I have invited the top fly fishers that I have been on my shows to join the conversations. If you're a member of Clubhouse, follow me on Clubhouse, and you'll be notified when I open the rooms. If you're not a member, you need to have an iPhone, which uh, it's, the platform's not available to Android yet. They, they will be bringing that on. And you need to be invited into the Clubhouse. If you need an invitation, contact me at roger at askaboutflyfishing.com. That's roger at askaboutflyfishing.com, and I'll see if I can help get an invitation. Again, I'll be hosting a room on Clubhouse every Thursday at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Hope to see you there. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of Knowledge Group Big doing businesses ask about fly fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Skip Morris about his latest book, 500 Trout Streams and what it's like writing for the fly fishing world. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Contui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength-to-weight ratios and dialed-in technique-specific actions and tapers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a truly deep lineup of rods, ranging from 12 weights for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. Again, that's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Skip, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. If you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Skip's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Skip's latest book, 500 Trout Streams. 
and here's how you can win. Uh, tonight, this is a little bit different. Um, to I encourage you not to participate unless you have a Amazon account and uh, live in the United States because that's the only way that we can deliver a Kindle version of the book to you. And that's what it's available in right now. But here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question I ask at the end of the show. And the question or question, sometimes they're two-part, will be about something that Skip and I talk about during the show. You just submit your answer along with your name and location using that text box on our homepage. So listen closely, take notes, use your best typing skills, and hopefully you'll win Skip's book. Our guest tonight is Skip Morris. There are a few names in the world of fly fishing so widely known and solidly established as Skip Morris. Skip has published 19 fly fishing books, including the genuine bestseller currently in its 22nd printing uh, called Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple. He has also authored many other books and written over 300 magazine articles on fly fishing in many different publications, including Fly Rod and Reel, Fly Tire, Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, Warm Water Fly Fishing, Fly Tying, American Angler, Salmon Trout Steelheader, Western Outdoors, Fly Fisherman, Fly Fusion, Midwest Fishing, and Hatches. So Skip's original fly patterns are tied and distributed by the Solitude Fly Company of uh, California, and their current catalog contains around 30 of Skip's patterns, many in several sizes. The Fly Shop in California, one of the major fly fishing mail order house, houses, carries several of Skip's patterns in its catalog and on its website. He's the instructor on six videos and has worked in radio and television as both a fly fishing host and celebrity guest. Skip, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thank you. Glad to be back. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. So we've done a few shows with Skip. Uh, in the past, we've done one on largemouth bass and bugs, and also fly fishing tips for trout, bass, and panfish. So I suggest that you uh, search our archive by Skip Morris. You'll find his his other shows that we've done there as well. And we've also, on our homepage of our website, listed out a lot of the books that Skip's authored, uh, so you can find those on the right-hand side of our website. So and enjoy that as well. So, um, Skip, again, you know, welcome back. Uh, we've got writing to talk about tonight more than anything yeah. else. So a little divergence from the practical part. We do have a few questions people ask about fishing. So we'll get to those, too, because uh, a lot of your books are on how to fish, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, until this book, uh, they really were all instructional books. Yeah, this is the first one where you kind of let it hang out, so to speak? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, this was, uh, this is a, well, I don't want to say literary, but I hope it is. <laughs> this is a book of essays, and, uh, you know, I mean, there's certainly information in there, but uh, on the whole, it's it's my attempt to write lit after all these years yeah. of writing and yeah. And in fact, I I was a professional musician until about six years ago, and and uh, I just quit that. Even though I loved it, but I I quit. I used to be a full timer, but I I just quit it, and I decided to put all my time into writing, and and that's what I've been doing for six years. And then I during that whole time, I kept working on these essays, and uh, out they what, came. Uh, what did you? What, what instrument did you play, or did you sing, or what? In the yeah, I was a guitarist and a vocalist. Oh. Oh, interesting. What kind of music? 
Oh, my, my greatest love was always jazz ever, from ever, oh. ever since I was a little kid. My dad always played all these jazz albums, you know, Ella Fitzgerald and, and uh, oh, wow. Howard Roberts and, and all those, all these great players. And, and yeah, I always loved jazz, but I ended up playing <laughs> a lot of different things to make a living as a musician. I mean, yeah. funk yeah. and country and pop music and it's wow. a long list. But then the I played other last... Yeah, I'm going to say, the other side of Skip Morris. <laughs> yeah, that was my, one of my yeah. other lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very interesting. Well, um, you obviously were interested in the written word uh, early on because you have a degree in English. and uh, But when did you put that interest of writing and fly fishing together? You know, honestly, almost from the start. Yeah, I, I never got good grades in school because it just there were too many other things to do when I was young. I finally did okay in college, but uh, you know, I was always reading books on fly fishing instead of reading my history books or doing my math problems, that kind of thing. And and let's see, where was I going with that? Uh, oh, just the was, connection between writing and fly fishing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I was yeah, right. What I was getting to is the one thing I, I really dove into whenever it would come up was writing an essay or writing something for English classes, and it was always something I got real good grades at, which was shocking to pretty much everybody. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I think when I was something like, I was probably 11, I had been reading a lot of Haig Brown by then, Roderick Haig Brown, whom I still, I love his writing. Um, but I, my parents, my father asked me, what are you going to do when you grow up for a living? And I said, well, I want to tie flies and write fly fishing books. And my parents both just let out this big roar because <laughs> nobody could do that, you know. How would you make a living doing that? And so that's where I got the idea. And then the first thing I ever published was <laughs> kind of funny. It wasn't very good either, of course, but when I was maybe 12 or something, 13, 14, I published something for this local newspaper on hunting and fishing. And I won a 10-weight fly line that I didn't have any idea what to do with. But it got published, and I weight. won the contest. <laughs> <laughs> it was something about nice fishing poppers for bad. Yeah, nice guys <laughs> giving me 10-weight. <laughs> oh, yeah, geez. they gave me something nobody else wanted, but, you know, yeah. still, I, I won it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny. Um, so, I mean, that was your first published piece. Uh, what was the first writing in the fly fishing? Well, that was in fly fishing, was it, or or not? That was, yeah. Oh, it, it was. was. Okay. Fishing so, for bass. Yep. Okay. Okay. So that was it. All right. What What was your first book that you got published? Well, I spent ten years. That was another one of my lives. I spent ten years designing and making graphite and fiberglass fly rods. I mean, actually designing the rod shafts, and then I would make the ferrules and all that stuff. And uh, Russ Peak was my mentor, really. I spent 10 years doing that, and then I wrote a book called The Custom Graphite Fly Rod, which I published with, um, it was back in 89, I think, published with what was then Lyons and Burford or, or Nick Lyons Books, which is pretty much now Skyhorse. That was my first book. Okay. And you did that with, uh, I think I see in your bio here, with Brian Chan as well. He contributed? Not to that Oh, book. no, that was on Fishing um, Lakes. That's Fishing Lakes, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah, Brian was that was great because I uh, I pretty much chased down every cell in his brain and tried to drain it of man. information, and I learned That's a tough. ton in the four years we worked on that book. Oh, there's a lot of stuff in that brain of 
Brian Chance, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. still water fishing and so forth. Yeah, that's cool. Um, how did your publishing your first book change your process of writing? Hmm, interesting question. Uh, I don't know that it did, honestly. Okay. Um, I think you know it was. To me, writing is writing, and I and it's interesting because the novelists. I know, and I know a few, and the and the and the writers, the how-to writers, you know, Dave Hughes, people like that, who are who are really skilled writers, and others, all feel that writing is writing. I mean, they, they haven't said they're outright, maybe, but they make it pretty clear that an essay is writing just as much as a novel or a short story, and that a that instructional writing is writing. I mean, writing is writing. But it's interesting because I find a lot of young novelists or, or new novelists. I've been in three different writing critique groups, and, and it's just as though everything but fiction is just, you know, it doesn't count, it doesn't matter, and I just don't believe that, and I notice that the better best writers I know don't believe that, and I also notice that Pulitzer Prize winning writers write essays and, and other things, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now yeah. I forgot the question, but anyway. <laughs> it's how did it change, how did the process change your, your writing, uh, publishing a book, but. You kind of, uh, you know, elaborated on that. And I think, you know, there's a big, uh, I mean, uh, the only book I've written was uh, a, a reference book on Windows 95 and 98, way back. Oh, really? And um, highly technical book. And, and I used to be a uh, training developer for a while and wrote a lot of manuals on computer applications and how to use them and so forth. And that's kind of, huh. in my mind, that, that's kind of like a fly-tying book. I mean, you're trying to give the exact instructions, do this, do that, show this. And that's a lot different than writing essays, I would think. Yeah, I think, you know, honestly, I think every form of writing is a lot different than other forms. And that, that's a definite form of its own. But I do agree with you. Uh, you know, so I agree with that. But <laughs> I also agree <laughs> with you that, that that would be similar to writing a fly-tying book or the like. And, uh, boy, I mean, writing a flight time book, my, my first flight time book was flight time made clear and simple, and I got two guys, um, I shouldn't say this, well, they, they know, they, who were particularly ham-handed, um, nice guys, <laughs> and they became good flight tires, but I wanted somebody who was going to have a little bit of a difficult time, and then I experimented with the copy, and I had them work only on the copy, no, no images at all, no illos, no photos. And when I got the copy to the point that they could do it right, both of them, then it went into the book that way. And, um, I mean, it, it took forever. It just took forever. But that yeah. was how I did yeah. Flight Time Made Clear and Simple, and that's how I also did Flight Time Made Clear and Simple, too, because, oh, man, that you, you were asking me before what changed my writing. That really, I mean, that was such an education to do that. I, I couldn't believe how many ways I could mess somebody up trying to tie a fly, especially a fairly complicated step. And yeah. and then I, you know, just picked up, I got a, a strong sense of how to avoid all those ways and, and get directly to the point and get them, you know, through the step successfully. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an art in itself, you know, um, writing those, writing instructions. And I find today, you know, and, and you know, trying to figure out, you know, computer applications today that uh, a lot of the instructions, you can tell, they weren't written by somebody that really knows how to teach. You know, they might be an expert in doing what they're doing, but they don't know how to teach. And teaching is another 
you know, art uh, and science in itself, but then when you transfer it to, you know, fly tying, it's a whole other world as well. So, uh, and it's it's hard to do in print, I think, as opposed to videos. I think it's maybe easier in videos. What what do you think about that? Oh yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, written uh, instruction certainly you know doesn't show you the movement, and that's such a big part of so many things. Casting in fly fishing, casting, tying a knot, tying right. a fly. On the other hand, a book is so handy because you can just take it over and flip 20 pages at once and find exactly where you want to be. Is whereas with a video, you know, you've got to kind of bounce around and try to try to find where he said this or or that, you know. Yeah. So I mean, books still have their place, but yeah, video has its benefits for sure. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's actually kind of benefited the the people learning because, um, uh, you know, I mean accessible on the internet now which is rather nice so uh, and you know the when I started it was uh, it was a, a guy that lived uh, next door to me the father there that taught me how to how to tie there were no videos and I think the only book I had back then was um, and, and I still have it uh, old Jack Dennis book I don't know if uh, I can oh, yeah. The title of it, but it was like the Bible back then. I wore that sucker out, just you know, trying to learn how to tie flies. But uh, um, and uh, I, I still love books as well. I mean, I'd rather read a book than than do anything else. It seems like um, and better on fly fishing. What after you wrote this, the essays? Um, did you like doing that? Uh, do you like doing that better than instructional types of books? Do you see yourself writing more along those lines? Oh, yeah, I expect to go more literary. <laughs> I mean, I still love fly fishing. I mean, I, I, not, of course I love fly fishing, but I, I still love learning about fly fishing. I mean, I'm trying to become an ever better uh, check nymph fisher and upstream mm-hmm. soft tackle fisher and all those things that uh, keep, keep either being, that are either new or reborn. Um, and I find flies still fascinating, but I think I'm, I expect to spend, as I have, these last few years, spent about half my time writing instructional things, and the other half of the time writing uh, what I would call literary stuff. And uh, I mean, that's a good day for me. I get up, I, I get going, and then the first thing I do is is I write. The hardest thing is the literary stuff because I mean, writing well is just a mountain, and it's. Uh, I mean, I do so many rewrites over so much time. You know, as I, I mean, I, I think I said somewhere that it took me three or four years. I can't remember which to write these ten essays, mm. and I was writing some oh. other ones as well. So I might have another book, and not in too long. But I mean, ten years. I mean, yeah. I, I, I can't even imagine how much time I put on on each of those essays. But I, I rewrote them and rewrote them and rewrote them, and then threw out what I'd rewritten and started all over. And and that's just the way it works. Wow, you're wow. trying to get words to do things that words don't seem as though they can do and the great writers do it and uh i try to do it (laughs) yeah i i mean i get that feeling when i'm reading a book you know are they creating that you know a movie in my mind so to speak and if i can Mm -hmm. see what they're writing then i relate to it a lot better you know if the writer creates that picture and i could see and uh you know i i read the the first essay you did about you know you wrote in 500 
trout streams about you know you starting out as a youngster and I could relate to that I could I could see you on the river and uh, I could see everything you were doing because <laughs> I had been I had been there in my own way as well you know I, I have my own story and uh, but it was nice to see that you know to learn about your story as well um, Jim did but, you start out as a kid well, I'm sorry I was gonna ask yeah. you did you start out fly fishing as a kid yeah, I mean, I went out with Dad when I was old enough to hold a rod, you know, throwing bass plugs <laughs> from a boat, right? Um, uh-huh. uh, because he was from Chicago, and we fished up in Wisconsin, and my grandfather had a, a house on the Menominee River up there, so we fished for pike and oh, smallmouth wow. bass and largemouth, and that's how I got started. And then I grew up in Alaska and uh, fished for salmon and trout up there, and then finally started fly fishing when I was about 13, and I kind of oh, taught myself and learned how to tie flies for the next door neighbor and um that's kind of where i got started in the fly fishing thing but uh yeah so um anyway uh enough about me jim uh <laughs> bud or buddy uh, in lincoln nebraska he says do you write for yourself or for a particular audience in other words saltwater fly fishers uh small streams lakes etc um you know i could there are a couple ways i could interpret that question but they're both good questions <laughs> okay and the first thing is whom do i write for and i think in the arts honestly after being up to my ears and in jazz and, and and other music and in writing uh and i'm not the first to say this by a long shot but um i think in the arts you have to write for yourself first you you have to please yourself and then hope that other people are pleased by what by your sharing that with them so i write for myself and I think every good writer does, so I hope that will make me or does make me a good writer. Um, I think, let's see, the other part of that question is what kind of writing, I think, do I do? Uh, what different fishes? Yeah, kind of, you know, what direction do you, does your writing take you towards, you know, what aspects of fly fishing I think he's getting at? Yeah, I, uh, you know, it's funny because I was just writing a, I just finished up a uh, an essay on basically on my being sort of a generalist and by that in my case it means that I'm open to anything but uh, I have a tendency to have a few favorites and fish for them in a number of different ways and so I, uh, I I'm not you know one of those people who, who just wants to fish well I'll just grab the easiest thing spring creeks with dry flies let's say I love spring creeks but I'll also fish for smallmouth bass with streamers or or hair bugs and you know there's there's a list like that so I I tend to be a freshwater guy although I do fish around here for sea run cutthroat sometimes and even for flounder because <laughs> we live almost on the water uh, up here in the Pacific Northwest but uh, I tend to be a trout in streams trout in lakes Largemouth bass, which are almost always in standing water anyway, um, and smallmouth in streams and panfish is anywhere I can find them. Those are the fishes that I fish for most. Okay. Okay, good. Uh, Skip, we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll dig more into to how you do your writing. We've got some great questions coming up, so hang tight. We'll be right back. Okay. There are many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook all within a few miles of each other. And you can do this in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie fly fishing, you're on a private island and only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out from Placencia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. Once you're there, you'll be fishing 
lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie, and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charliesleflyfishing.com or call 303-430-4634. Again, that's charliesleflyfishing.com, 303-430-4634. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Skip Morris about his latest book and how he wrote it, 500 Trout Streams. If you'd like to ask Skip a question, just uh, go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. Okay, Skip, um, we've got, let's see here, um, Phil uh, McCartney in Kentucky. Uh, has um, sent uh, several questions, and uh, I'll roll through them here one by one. He says, do you keep a record of each day spent fishing with an eventual goal of perhaps including the day's events in a book? Um, I try not to think about writing about something when I'm fishing, and I'll tell you why. It's it's a philosophy that I'd come to a long time ago, but I uh, one of the books I'm reading recently, lately, I usually am reading about six or seven at a time, is Joyce Carol Oates' The Faith of a Writer. And she speaks in there about if you if you go out and try to live a life that's interesting so you can write about it, then it comes off as forced, which in fact it really is. So I just fish a lot and tie a lot and speak a lot at clubs and shows and all this stuff. And then I do, then after it, it has actually happened on its own, uh, especially the fishing, I do take fairly detailed notes, more and more that now that I've become serious about, really serious about writing. Uh, and then I use that, but I, I think that's really an important point is that I don't try to create something that's going to become worth writing about. I just try to go out there and live, and then I try to record it. Ah, okay, good. Um, Phil has another question. He says, are the days during which the fish are uncooperative those that provide the best material for a book? Um, I'd have to think about that, and so I don't have a yes or no answer, but I will say this. They certainly can be interesting fish and worth writing about. And, uh, in fact, the second essay of uh, in uh, 500 Trout Streams starts out, first thing it, I talk about in there is about a difficult fish that dri was driving me nuts, and some people, some my, fr my fishing partners, including my wife, were sitting up watching me try to get this fish, which only made it more, you know, <laughs> more embarrassing yeah. but when I failed. And I won't tell you whether I finally got the fish or not, but uh, um, I guess the simple answer is not necessarily, but certainly difficult fish have the potential for being interesting fish. Right, right, yep. And uh, another question from Phil, he says, do you find yourself seeking new water to fish in order to see if the lessons you have learned over the past 50 years translate to an unfamiliar setting? Or do you prefer to visit those spots where pleasant memories were created? Well, that's a, that's a good question, and the answer is yes. Which both, right? normally doesn't fit with an or with a question with an or in the middle, yeah. but um, I do really like both. I like fishing new water, and every year I do. I make a, a point of doing that, but I also like going back to familiar places. And uh, I do about well when I'm around home. Uh, 
I fish familiar water almost all the time because there isn't a whole lot of water around here that I haven't fished yet. Uh, at least you know part of a certain some, part of every kind of water. There's some, but um, when we're on trips, I try to include a mix of familiar water and new water. And sometimes we'll go to a new area, Carol and I, in Montana or Oregon or someplace like that, and we'll, it'll be all new water. And then other times we'll go someplace that we have fished before, and we might fish only one new creek or stream, but then the next week, the next leg of the trip, we'll be fishing all new water. So it's kind of a mix. I mean, I, I love going back to familiar water. I just It's so cool to fish some stream or lake or whatever for you know, maybe fish it 50 times and then discover something new in it, a new, some, some little thing that nobody but a fly fisherman would care about, but it's so exciting to, to find the fish feeding in some new way or, or li- holding in some new water or, or a different right. hatch or, 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 you know, and then, but at the same time, it's, it's really enlightening and exciting to step onto some water you've never fished. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree too. Uh, it's always the, the unknown is always, fun and exciting and uh and going home to the the home rivers are always a pleasure as well um this brings up uh, two things i want to ask you about uh what's going on in your fly fishing world and uh, i don't know if a lot of people know this but uh there's somebody very significant in fly fishing world that we need to talk about here for a few minutes and that's your wife carol right she's got a big part in your books right could you kind of toot her horn for her? <laughs> She's not on with us. I would be happy to, and she would be happy for me to. Uh, yeah, she, you know, for, uh, boy, I'm trying to think of how long. It's been a long time. She has been my photographer and my artist, you know, who does the illustrations for my books. And so we end up working pretty closely together. In fact, she's become more than that. For example, 500 Trout Streams, she read through it. She looked for any kind of typos, so she's become my editor. And then when we, before we put it up on as an ebook, uh, which we which we have done with a number of books, we sat down and we went through it line by line and and uh, to see if anything was amiss. So I, I just Carol's involved in so many ways now. We're so involved together in this work, and she got to the point where she started speaking and and she's got a couple new shows, but the one she's done most is about. Her specialty, one of her two specialties, is photography for the fly fishers. So she's done that for a lot of clubs all over the country and in Canada, and and she's uh, she's done that at fly fishing shows, and she teaches a, a clinic on photography for the fly, specifically for the fly fisher. So yeah, we uh, we're a team, and you know that brings everything that being a team <laughs> entails, which which means most of the time we. We really, it's a, it's a thrill and a gift to work together, and then sometimes it's very frustrating, and we don't need to get into that. But most of the time, it's great. Yeah, good, good. And uh, tell us, you have a website, and tell us what you're doing out there and uh, how people can get connected to you and uh, get your products and so forth. Oh, sure. Um, well, actually, you know, as far as my books go, the ebook, 500 Trout Streams, of course, you can only get on Amazon Kindle, but my other books, all of them are being carried now, everyone, I believe every one of them, by The Fly Shop in Redding, California, big big mail-order operation, and another big mail-order operation, Feathercraft Fly Fishing in St. Louis. They both carry all my books. And Feathercraft Fly Fish, The Fly Shop carries a bunch of my patterns, and, the, uh, and Feathercraft carries all of them, so the fly patterns. And so, uh, yeah, I'm pretty tied up with them. You can get the, the books through them. 
And, of course, fly shops carry some of them, and sometimes I see them in Barnes & Noble and places like that. Um, and then the, the website is, all you have to do is put in Skip Morris Fly Tying, and it will take you to our website. Put that in Google, or you can do the whole thing, www.skip-morris, etc. Uh, but there's a bunch of stuff on there, uh, articles new and old, and uh, some fly tying stuff, some fly fishing stuff. There's a hatch chart. That's the new thing. That took me months. I'm sorry, I lied. There's a fly proportion chart, which I decided it was at one time it was a publisher put it out, and then they stopped doing books, and so I just decided I'm going to give it to people free, and so I completely redid it. It took me months, and it's up on our website, and all you have to do is pull it up and print it out, and you get a fly proportion chart, and if you don't know how important a fly proportion chart is, or fly proportions rather, you don't you haven't been tying very long, because <laughs> if you don't get the proportions right on a fly, it may not... It may not float right, it may not sink right, it may not swim right, it may not hook fish, it may not hold fish, it may not look what it, like what it's supposed to look like, and that's where a, a fly proportion chart is a lifesaver. Nice. So there's a yeah, long I answer to a short question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's good. So, again, okay. folks, uh, if you want to find um, Skip's website, it is skip-morris-fly-tying.com. Okay, so skipmorrisflytying.com with hyphens, and uh, you'll be able to see his articles and get this proportion chart, which is great. It's wonderful. So thanks for sharing can that. I, can I throw one thing in there so sure. I don't get in trouble? Yeah. Uh, Carol, has an Etsy. <laughs> <laughs> Carol has an Etsy store uh, you know, on Etsy, and it's it's got a bunch of her artwork and her photography, and um, I think it's Carol A. Morris Flyfish, but if you look for Carol Ann, Carol Ann Morris or Carol Morris on Etsy, you'll find it. Okay, good. All righty. Okay, so let's see here. Um, a question comes up here. What kind of research do you do, and how long do you spend researching before beginning a book? Um, I'm assuming we're talking about instructional books here. So, I mean, because any kind of, anything you write about, you end up researching. And yeah. um, if I'm doing a, well, let's say it's a, say it's a fly tying book. I'll, uh, when I get the idea to do the book, if I really think there's even a chance I'll be doing it, I start exploring that particular kind of fly, whatever it is. Um, and and then I tie a bunch of them and try to figure out how to tie them, and I go fishing and fish them. I really try to know all I can, and then when I start writing the book, that's when the research, because then, by then I've got a, a contract with a publisher, that's when the real research starts. And, <laughs> And that's why I try to, I always beg my publishers for lots of time, because as I'm writing the book, I'm researching the heck out of this stuff. And then with all our trips and then local fishing, I'm fishing those flies and getting to know them. So I would, the simple answer is a lot, a lot of research, which I really enjoy, actually. Yeah, 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 it's, um, <laughs> I've talked to a lot of writers, you know, on my show and stuff, and yeah, it's always, you know, uh, well, I have to go out and do some research. I'll be fly fishing today for the next eight hours. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is hard part of research. That. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's the fun part, the easy part. Yeah. Although I, sh yeah. I shouldn't say that. I mean, one of the, like if I'm writing a fly tying book, or I'm writing a book where there's a technique that I don't know very well. Like I've been working the last couple of years on Davy Watton's upstream soft tackle fishing. Mm -hmm. then when I'm out fishing and the fishing is really good and I'm having a great time doing the things, fishing the flies and the methods that I'm used to, 
I got to switch over and do something that I'm uncomfortable with because I know how the fishing was before, and now I got to make this work and figure it out. And yeah. that is, I don't mind it. In fact, I, I do actually enjoy it. But it's a little frustrating when everything's right and it's going great and you go, nope, I've got to, you know, try this new fly and try to make it work or try this new yeah. technique or rig yeah. or something. That that drives me a little nuts, but I, I survive. Good, good. Do you have any kind of a writing routine? Like um, when during the day do you do it? Uh, do you have a particular place you do it? Do you do it in longhand? Do you do it on the computer? Lots of questions. Um, yeah, I you know I get up and, and shake the sleep out of my head, and then I go over and sit in my fifty chair, which is the chair that the easy chair my wife bought me when I turned fifty. Okay. <laughs> and I, I like it. It's a recliner. I really like it. And I I sit there. I've got my thesaurus and my dictionary, and I've got this old uh, but good uh, book of synonyms that my mother gave me that she she had when she was a kid, and uh, and I turn on the light. And I sit there and I work. And sometimes my cat gets in my lap and it's hard to write, but I still keep writing. And I'll do that and then I'll just take a break for breakfast and I'll make breakfast and, and then I'll <clears throat> go back to writing. And sometime around 1 or 2 or 3 in the afternoon, I'll, I'll usually start sometimes, sometime around 6 a.m. Sometime around 1 or 2 or 3, I will, uh, I'll be done writing for the day. Although there's plenty of other things to do in my business, which is good, things that I don't have to think about as much. But throughout the day, um, I'll take breaks to read, and then I read usually for a half hour, an hour before I go to bed. And I've usually got several titles that I'm reading, and uh, earlier in the day, I will ruin my books. I'll make all kinds of notes in them, and I'll look up words, and I'll make make notes about how this author or that author played off played off this idea with this idea or this word off this word or I'll mark out the rhythms of the syllables, that kind of thing, and ruin the book for a resale. Um, <laughs> so I just, you know, when I when I got out of music, I, I really put all those hours, and there were a lot of them. I used to practice three hours a day and then play gigs that were five hours at night, all jazz gigs by that point. But uh, when I quit doing that, I had a lot of extra time, and I put it pretty much all into writing. Yeah. Do you write longhand or do you write on a laptop, or how do you? Oh no, I just I just write on a laptop. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, I know some people that still write longhand cuz there's something about the you know, it's cathartic or something in, in the process of doing that. So I was just curious, yeah. Um I can see uh, that. Yeah. How do you stay productive and and not get distracted? Um I'm pretty good at that. Um uh, I just I I just <laughs> I kind of put my blinders on without thinking about it. I'm just built that way. I, uh, it's funny, too, because when I was a kid, well, I was that way when I was a kid. The problem I had when I was a kid is that I couldn't put my blinders on when it came to homework. But even when I was a young, you know, I was 10 years old learning to tie flies or even a year or two before that, I don't remember. Um, I just, you know, when I was tying flies, a bear could have charged me and I wouldn't have looked up. I would have just kept tying the fly. I, I, I've just always been very focused. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got. Uh, let me let me take a quick break here, and I've got some some interesting questions coming in on the internet too. So I want to pose those to you. But hang with me, and I'll be right back, and we'll we'll answer some of those questions as well. Okay. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one of a kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products include brushes, fibers, and components 
uh, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com. Again, that's epflies.com, and do a little shopping today. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Skip Morris about 500 trout streams. If you'd like to ask Skip a question, just go to our homepage and use that text box there and send us your question. So, Skip, we've got a couple of things coming in here on the Internet. Um, I'm, let's see. Oh, yeah, Phil wrote in here. He says, several years ago, you did some presentations to northern Kentucky fly fishers. And he said, you played the guitar. You did a great job speaking about fly fishing and playing the guitar. He says, a man of many talents. So uh, Phil got to see both sides of you. Yeah, good. Did I do that in Kentucky? <laughs> I've done it a few places. Yeah, that's I didn't what remember that thing in Kentucky. I have spoken in Kentucky. I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. That was a long anyway, time ago, I think. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, let's see here. Um uh, Phil Burden says, Skip, what's your favorite fly to tie and why? And what was your favorite fly to write about? Hmm. Well, you know, I just finished a piece that I was, an essay I was working on, on a fly that is fun to tie. I wouldn't say it was my favorite. It goes back to the 20s, I think. It's the Cary Special. And if you don't fish trout lakes, you never heard of it. But if you fish trout lakes, and especially if you fished them up in British Columbia, you've heard of it. It doesn't go away. That fly is still going on a century old, and it's it's still popular. It still catches fish too. It's kind of a cool fly. It has a very unusual hackle. It's uh, pheasant rump, which I don't think any other fly that I I can't think of one that uses pheasant rump unless it's a knockoff. You know, some kind of a variation of a Curry Special. But that one's that one's a cool fly, and it's on my mind because I just wrote that piece. Um, the fly I enjoy tying the most right now, and, and that's something that's been changing constantly throughout my life, but hmm. not surprised, nobody should be surprised that it's an original pattern of mine, <laughs> because you get, you get so involved with the fly when you develop it that, of course, it's fun to tie when, when you get to the reward part that the fly has actually worked out. But it's a fly called the Skip's Promise. Carol named it that. I really didn't. And it's, uh, I can tie it really fast, but it's a, I think it's a pretty fly. And it's a dry fly, and it can imitate a, um, a big caddis fly, or it can imitate a, a stone fly, or or a grasshopper, depending on how you how you tie it, or and the colors you use, and the size. And it can imitate, and it can just be a general sort of searching the water pattern. But it's got wiggly legs that stick out the sides, rubber strand, and it's uh, it floats real well, and it's easy to see. And uh, I just enjoy tying it because it's it's kind of different. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Uh, another question from the Internet, Joyce Deming in Golden, Colorado, says, what writers have inspired you, your favorite essayist, uh, your favorite nature writer? Boy, you know, that's, I mean, there are a lot of wonderful writers. Uh, I've written, I've read so many, um, so many editions of the best American short stories and, and a lot of the best American essays since they started coming out. Uh, and, man, it's that's what see that's what's really daunting to me is how wonderfully some people write. <laughs> it's very intimidating. <laughs> I'm trying, but um, that's actually an easy question to answer because the ones specifically that affected me the most are first of all it's got to be Roderick Hague Brown. I love Hague Brown. Um, if anybody who's not familiar with him, 
they maybe should get familiar with him. He writes in sort of a, a somewhat formal style, but uh, he just touched me when I was when I was 12 years old. It just his writing just really moved me, and and he has such a, a wonderful curiosity and and such a keen eye and an honest eye. I mean that's that's one of the things that separates sort of pedestrian writing from good writing, I think, and I'm not the first to say this, but is that honesty, that lack of sentimentality, that you're really writing about what is there, the feeling, the, what you're seeing, whatever it is, that you're being honest. Honest writing is so much more powerful, and Haig Brown is just just amazes me, and I'm, I still read him all the time, all the time. I've been, mm. My grandmother bought me all his books, some of them first editions, when I was about... 15 or 16 and I'm amazed they're still uh, they still are together they must have been well well made but so yeah, Hake Brown yeah. definitely and then later on uh, some of my favorite short story writers are Ha Jin who is a Chinese American writer um, I've learned a lot from him I've learned a lot more from Tim Gatro who uh, who I just I love his short stories he's just an incredible writer and uh, who else Frank O'Connor Frank O'Connor amazes me. I love Frank O'Connor. Those are probably the biggest influences on me, I would say, on the whole. Yeah, okay, good. Um, question from uh, Lee Smith in Connecticut. Um, writes in and says, in a time where there are a prolific amount of, co of content on the web, increasing day by day, what topics continue to be of interest to fly fishing print publishers, writers, and readers? Asked another way, formats such as blogs, Facebook, Instagram, and videos have eroded readership substantially. Are there still market niches for print long form? Yeah, uh, well, I'll tell you, instructional book sales have changed dramatically. And, uh, you know, was, did you have John Shuey on your show once? Uh, I, I don't think did. so. Did I? Oh, okay. I thought let me, let me, I'll look up. <laughs> I, I mean, I've had over 200 people on my show, and I've done over right. 30 shows. It's like, uh, I know. maybe? <laughs> no, no, uh, I would, I, you know, I wouldn't remember, but but I know John. Um, he's the uh, editor at, uh, it, well, it was Northwest Fly Fishing. I think they've combined the different versions, yeah. Southwest, Northwest. But anyway, I think it was on your show. But anyway, it was an interview I was listening to online, and he was talking about how things have changed, and they have. Uh, instructional books, um, they have to be pretty focused. Time-wise, you could just teach people a bunch of flies, and they went, great, we love this. But now um, that's what the Internet does. It teaches you a bunch of flies. You pull something up, and here's this bonefish fly, and here's this other kind of fly, and just a mix of everything. So, so an instructional book has to be focused, and it has to be something people want, of course. But even if it is focused and it's something people want, the, the sales are going to be much, much lower than they were in, say, the 90s before the Internet really took over and before YouTube came along. So things have changed a lot. Um, really, really good books that really hit the market, hit, hit a market, uh, can still do well, but it's, uh, it's much tougher. A book that was a poor seller, in 1995 would be considered a very good seller now. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I did not uh, interview him. I looked and uh, so don't, so folks don't go looking for one on my site. Uh, I must have been uh, a different uh, podcast or something, but uh, Sorry yeah. about that. Um, oh, no, no problem. Um, sounds like one I missed or I should do. Um, anyway, uh, let's see here. Would you mind reading an excerpt 
from um, uh, 500 Trout Streams and uh, share with us a little bit of your writing? I would not mind a bit. Um, okay. Yeah. In fact, I got a couple things prepared ahead of time. <laughs> Good. So here's a. This is an essay in the book called "Going Back, Sort of, to the Sort of Good Old Days," and it's about uh, an experiment I conducted, if you want to call it that. I just basically I there was just I think it's I'm trying to remember what I wrote in the essay because it was a couple of years ago. I mean it's it's amazing to me that I can don't remember every word after all the rewrites, but I don't. And uh, I think but it, I think it was this reel that my father-in-law gave me that was from the 60s or 70s, and it was a really a piece of junk. And it was sitting on a table downstairs, and we just kept walking by it, and I didn't put it away, which is what I do. And then one day I thought, I'm going to, you know, I picked it up, and I, and I played with it a little bit, and I, it was pretty horrible. And I thought, you know, I'm going to, I might try fishing this thing. And then I, it occurred to me I, I should dig out one of those old rods that I had when I was a kid because I still have one or two of those around. So I did that, and I dug out um, some other stuff and some old, some actually some old hooks that weren't, didn't come pre-chemically sharpened the way they do now, and I decided to go fishing. And I didn't go to the kind of place that I went when I was a kid. I went to a, an estuary instead of a creek or a trout lake, but still, I, it was kind of an informal experiment. I just wanted to see what it was like to go back after all those years and fish with that stuff I fished with as a kid. So now that I've told you all about the, <laughs> about the, uh, about the essay, I'm going to read some of it. This is right, comes right out of the middle of it. These days, outside of those rare times when I fish dry flies for them, I nearly always fish for sea-run cutthroats with weighted flies, flies that get down and stay a foot or so down against a stripping retrieve of a floating line. The big wet, though, and here I'm talking about the, the ones that I tied that were old-style flies, unweighted. The big wet, though, sank lazily under nothing but the weight of its stout hook, turning slowly on its descent through the slight current, its hackles waving gently, giving off hints of life I'd never observed in the weighted patterns, and I wondered if there was something to learn in that. With the cuts likely nervous in the clear, shallow water, the subtle movements of the fly seemed just right. I felt good about how things were going. I gave the fly a few twitches and saw its long, outstretched hackles gently pulse, reminding me vaguely of a swimming jellyfish. My dreamy observations ended abruptly with the grab of a 12-inch cut. I tightened, and the hook came free. A few casts later, I lost another 11 or 12-incher. Then a larger cutthroat took, but it got off too. You can fish a lot for sea runs and find few or none. It's a common scenario. So I was irked at losing three in a row. Then I remembered about the old hooks, how you could slide them straight out of the box across your thumbnail all day without making a scratch. That's how a lot of fly fishers test hooks. If they catch on a nail, they're sharp. Out of habit, I had not sharpened the hook. These days, a new hook comes as sharp as it can be. But I never sharpened a hook as a kid, so if my experiment were to mean anything, I couldn't now. The cuts were really in. I started giving the line an aggressive yank, one I'd normally consider overkill for the conditions and fish, when I felt a take or saw a swirl at my fly. I still lost too many fish, but I hooked some, even landed some. One supercharged 10-incher kept tearing up the placid face of the pool and flying up through it. On a leap, he slung the fly. Among the cutthroats were a few coho salmon big enough to do as they pleased. They showed occasionally in angry swirls. I'd hooked cohos in that pool before, and I wondered what would happen if a five-pounder took my fly, then came up against that limp rod and catchy reel. My odds of landing a fish like that seemed lousy. 
But I knew that my odds of hooking one were comfortably low. And there you go. Great, great. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah, Thank and you. and you you fish a lot of cutthroats up in because um, you're are you on do you live on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington or nearby or? No, we do. We live right on the Olympic Peninsula. Oh, okay, okay. And a lot of these cuts are uh, sea run cuts too coming in, right? You said this was a estuary we're fishing. So, it was. Uh, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, it was an estuary. I think I'm trying to think about an hour, hour and a half from here or something. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we Good. I'm right in the heart of sea run cutthroat country. <laughs> That's the beautiful part of the world. I've only been there once and I when I was in college, we went up there and we backpacked into the uh national uh Olympic National Forest up there and camped on oh, the beach yeah. and uh, it was just a wonderful experience, uh, but uh, I, I, I'll always remember that. Well, good. Um, were you over on the west, Roger? Were you over on the west, the wet side, the west side? Yeah, yeah, the west okay. side. Yeah. yeah, You may have experienced torrential rains. I don't know, but no, it was the when we were backpacking. It was beautiful, sunny, hot. We went skinny dipping in a lake way up on the top of the mountain, and uh, oh, it was wow. just wonderful. Yeah, I, we probably got lucky, but. Uh, um, I think it was like the end of August or something like that that we were up oh. there, and weather good, was beautiful. Good timing, because yeah. they get ridiculous amounts of rain over there. <laughs> yeah, well, when you're walking across these logs that are, you know, like six feet in diameter across the rivers, and the ferns are over your heads, you know, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of water to grow those kinds of things. So, yeah. Oh, it yeah. Was, it was very fun. Yeah. Hey, uh, we've the got uh, cat. Go ahead. Oh, okay. No, go ahead. Um, Catherine um, Pave, Deva, um, I'm probably not pronouncing her name properly, but she's in Eugene, Oregon, and uh, she says, the, the book 500 Trout Streams sounds intriguing, like friends sharing fish tales over a campfire. Of course, one of us, not me, would be the world traveler and expert fly fisher. Looking forward to the discussion in the book. And she goes on, she has a couple of questions. What prompted the writing of this book? Is it more reflective than instructive? as many of your previous books have been, and I think you kind of answered that already. Um, and then she asked them, why 500 uh, streams and not 287 or 342? <laughs> well, those are fine numbers, uh, Catherine. Yeah. But, um, well, I, I don't know how long ago it was, but I came up with this idea that I might and or wanted at least to fish 500 trout streams in my lifetime. And I started fishing trout streams when I was probably – Oh, Lord, eight, <laughs> and I'm about to turn 70 in a few months, and I uh, I won't tell you how close I am to make, achieving that, but I did find something out very surprising when I did the math, and uh, that's sort of the basis for the, the two-part essay, uh, 500 Trout Streams, in the book. But it just seemed like a, a nice round number. I thought about a thousand, then I did a little math back when I first <laughs> thought about doing this. I thought, no, no, I think I'm going to be, you know, they're going to be carting my my body around in an iron lung or something. But but 500 is possibly doable. Yeah, Dan uh, Klingberg asks. He says, if you could fish only one stream again of all the 500 streams. Which one would it be? And then he says, P.S., did you really fish 500 streams? Well, you just answered that. He says, I've been fishing for 50-plus years. I'm 71, but I've only fished 20 streams. <laughs> so, well, so, they're uh, probably a great 20 streams, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, is there one stream, you know, if tomorrow 
you were told you could only fish one more day, would there be one stream that you would go back to? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, if I were told that, I could probably come up with one, but, you know, I, I just, this dichotomy that I, that is me, that half of me loves to return to familiar places that I've gotten to know intimately, and the other half wants to charge off and, and fish new water. Um, I just don't think I could answer that because, you know, the streams that I love most seem to change every two or three years, and that's been going on as long as I've been around. I wish I could answer that question. It's a good question. A lot of people would have a good answer for it, but that's about as close as I can come. Is, is, okay. okay. No. <laughs> um, uh, Thomas Doughty in uh, Pearland, Texas, asked, do you have some awareness and experience of fly fishing as a spiritual uh, not religious practice? If so, please describe. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah, it, to me it's not a religious thing, but spiritual, oh, yeah. I mean, I. Uh, it's there are two things in my life that, well, three, I guess. Writing does that to a large degree, but even writing doesn't take me out of myself the way that fishing and, and playing jazz or music in general did. Uh, I just, everything that clutters my brain goes away, and it's me and the fish and the water and the tackle, and and I just, I come away so refreshed, and my mind is so clear, and I, I just, I'm kind of buoyed by a day's fishing. It, it makes me feel uh, as though I'm not even, the, as though gravity isn't having any effect on me. It's, it's a great feeling, and I think that's what keeps bringing me back to fishing. It's, it's a fascination. I've always had that. I've always been absolutely fascinated by fish. I mean, Carol and I were talking about it the other day, and when I was a kid, we, my parents, I'd look at a swimming pool, and I'd think, you know, if you got the people out of here, I mean, this is when I was nine or ten or something, I think if you got the people out of here, kept them out, and you let the, the water go natural, you know, um, eventually you're going to have some weeds growing up and some silt in the bottom, and you could throw fish in this swimming pool and fish for them. I mean, that, I would almost do that with a glass of water. Any kind of water, a bathtub, I would think about fish, and I wanted to catch hmm. fish in it. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that has much to do with the question, but it, I think it has to do, it does have to do, I guess, with why fishing just takes me completely out of everything I need to be taken out of once in a while. So that's the spiritual part for me. Yeah, and I, I would agree. I mean, when I go fishing, you know, and you're out there, you could be out there for six, eight hours, ten hours, and then all of a sudden the day ends and you realize that all you thought about was fishing and being out in, in, in nature and you didn't think about business, you didn't think about the bills you had to pay, you know, you didn't think about other stressful things in your life. And, it, it, wow, that day went by really nicely and really fast. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and the only frustrating thing was losing fish or getting hung up in the tree, you know, which, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, but, but, yeah, I mean, you lose, you, you just lose kind of consciousness. I, I do, you know, during the day. It's just, there, there's nothing else, you know, but the fishing, you know, which, which I really enjoy. So it sounds like we're, we're on a similar page of a book there. Uh, yeah, um, I think so. Uh, Peter Donahue, who's in Ireland, uh, he says, what's your favorite book on fly fishing by another author? <laughs> That's going to be pretty easy. Okay. Um, yeah, you know it's going to be Hague Brown at, by this point. And okay. um, 
I've always thought it would be A River Never Sleeps, which is sort of his, sort of, I think widely considered his, well, just kind of his masterwork. But then as I've been reading his books lately, I have to admit that, you know, all his, all his fishing books just make me crazy. I just, I just love them, and I love rereading them. So it's easier to pick the author, and that's Hague Brown, of course. But, okay. um but I'd, I'd still say probably River Never Sleeps is my favorite. Okay, okay. The funny thing um, is I don't... Re- oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you, you go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to say the funny thing, it just it kind of dawned on me, I've, I've realized this before, but is that I don't think I write as Haig Brown wrote. I don't think his voice is very strong in my voice, but that's really not uncommon with writers. You get inspired by somebody, you... you beat their work to death, and yet your voice comes out quite a bit different than theirs. That's that's real common. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I noticed about reading books is I'll know within a page or two whether I am in tune with that writer. In other words, mm-hmm. is it free-flowing? Do I feel comfortable? Is it easy to read, or am I struggling? Um, and uh, do you feel the same way when, when you're reading others' books? Yeah, I, I do tend to. I, one of the things I, I naturally did, and then I, after that I started reading advice all the time about this, but for a writer is to read everything. You know, read what you love. Don't hesitate to do that. Don't be ashamed of reading what you love or of what you love or writing what you love, but also expose yourself to all kinds of writing. And I, In the arts, it's been funny to me. I, I'm kind of changing the subject, sorry, but <laughs> uh, oh, I often, in music and in writing, I, I've often found that I learn more, and speaking too, I learn often more from people who do it poorly than from people who do it really well. People who do those things really well, the art is so beautifully hidden that it's hard to dig out, and when people who do something badly, it's so obvious that you don't want to go where they went, and what got them there, that it's interesting. I, I, I haven't heard other people talk about that much, but uh, that's part of the reason is I read a, a big variety. Is I, yeah. I want to read the bad and the good both. Hmm. Okay. But good. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And a writer tends to grab you in the first few paragraphs or not. Yeah, and it's kind of a rhythm for me, you know. Uh, it's like, am I getting into it? Is it is it flowing? And some books I've read, I, it seems like I struggle, you know, to get into the book, and I usually don't finish the book then, you know, so. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Um, let me take another quick break, and when we come back, I'd like you to read another excerpt from uh, 500 Trout Streams, if you will. So hang tight, okay. and uh, I'll be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. Uh, FFI's core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community with in the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. 
Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Skip Morris about 500 trout streams. If you'd like to ask Skip a question, just go to our home page and fill out that form, and we'll see if we can't get an answer tonight for you. Okay, Skip, um, you're on again. How about another reading from uh, 500 Trout Stream? <laughs> okay, a dramatic reading you shall have. Um, and I should tell everybody I'm a speaker, but I'm not an actor. It's It feels funny to read my stuff, but uh, I'm happy to do it. Uh, this is a piece that's in the book called titled Fishing at the Brink of the Great Beyond. And we enter the essay, uh, I, I should tell you, you're not going to see the introduction, so at least not, you're not going to hear it right now. It's basically about all the times in my life that I've just about bought the fly shop. And there have been so many, and some of them have been really unusual, like this one that I'm about to read about. But uh, I'm, I shouldn't be here now. I should have, any number of times I should have, I should have been good, I should have ended my life, and, and uh, somehow I got through it. So at some point I decided I would write an essay about it. Uh, so here we go. I'm going to start uh, mid-essay. Another risky situation, getting caught amid a pod of whales. This happened in British Columbia, just south of the Alaska border, where I was a mile or two offshore in a 10-foot outboard skiff. Up there, no one should go out a mile or two offshore alone in a 10-foot skiff, whales or no whales, especially on a cold, dim morning of steady wind, the kind the Canadian coast can serve up even in July, which it was. Yet again, I'd set myself up for disaster. Soon after I got my line out to troll, a shotgun blast from behind jerked my shoulders up around my ducking head. I turned and scanned the water, but saw nothing among the gray waves. A moment later, 50 yards off, a great tail rose above the waves, then cracked down hard on the water. Shotgun sound explained. I watched in awe before the fear set in, and in that moment judged the tail significantly wider than my boat's length. A whale surfaced on the other side of me then to blast water up from its spout. More whales showed. They were all around me. I imagined a whale surfacing under my boat or a great tail slamming down on it. I whirled the reel handle until the line was in and tossed the rod into the, onto the floor of the boat, fired up the outboard, and ran quietly out, hoping I was making enough noise to alert any whales in my path, but not enough to panic them. Good strategy. I mean, after all, here I am. Each of these events, and of course now I'm referring back to everything that was all the stories I told before, each of these events occurred before my 15th birthday, which, as you can see by now, I was lucky to attend. But I was far from done knocking on the reaper's door. And there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crazy things you do as kids, huh? Um, yeah. I kept doing well, them, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of them after I was not a kid anymore. Yeah, a few in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, it's been a good 10 years there. since I've unnecessarily risked my life, but uh, yeah, boy, I made yeah. up for it before that. Yeah, I remember I remember the last, I was fishing down in the San Juan River, and uh, there were a lot of fish rising, and it was getting darker and darker, and I had waded Ooh. across the river, and it was getting really dark, and I said, i got to get back across the river, and and I could not see into the water or anything, and I start mm. wading. And then all of a sudden, I start bobbing <laughs> down the river in my waders. You oh, know? no. My feet, my feet lost grip, and I'm going, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? And, and I kept kind of pedaling underneath, trying to get 
purchase on the bottom, and I finally got it and 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 got myself out. But that was that was the last really scary thing I did waiting, and I've been a little bit more careful <laughs> since then. But uh, but yeah, that is some, scary. Yeah, it it was scary, but because uh, that's uh, not anyway. a, that's a, that's not a fast moving river, but it's definitely got some odd hydraulics, and I know that it can be dangerous. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I'm glad you're yeah. here now, Roger. Yeah, me too. I'm glad you're here now too, Skip. <laughs> Thanks. Me too. Hey, we've got we've got a few questions left um, outside of writing, but people want to ask you about fishing. So is that okay if we hit some of these fishing questions? No, I'm hanging up. Uh, okay. Of course it is. Yeah, yeah. That's, sure, that'd All be right. great. Okay. Um, uh, Bob Garman in Philadelphia says, is there anything you learned along the way that you wished you had learned earlier in your fly fishing career? Hmm, as far as fly fishing, um, I mean, I've, every day of my life I make mistakes, and I've made so many. Uh, sometimes I think about it, at this age you start, at least I do, I start looking back and going, well, shoot, I blew that, and boy, I did that wrong, and, you know, I just wish I'd made that decision. In fly fishing, uh, not so much. I, You know, I could, I could probably pick out some things. I, I wish I'd traveled outside my home region earlier than... I used to fish British Columbia and Washington, but I never really took off and fished around until I was 19 or 20. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wish I'd started earlier doing that, but that's kind of minor. I mean, I fish so much. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty hard to complain. Yeah. You know, nothing's yeah. coming to mind, honestly, although okay. uh, I've made a million goofs, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, Joe uh, Branshaw in Colorado Springs, Colorado, wrote in and says, when fishing a new trout stream, do you inquire at a local fly shop what flies have been producing, or do you just go to the stream and observe uh, what's in the water? You know, um, I do both because I think being observant is one of the most important tools of any angler, but a fly fisher in, included can have. And a lot of anglers are too quick to just jump in the water and start throwing whatever fly they thought they should have on. Uh, at the fish, and uh, it's much better just to get there and and stop periodically and just look. So that's, yes, I'm 100% behind that, but I also do a lot of research. Uh, if we're going somewhere, I will get online and try to find, especially personal fishing reports of fishing that particular river, lake, whatever. Um, and I w if there's a fly shop in the area, anywhere near the area, I'll try to get in there before I fish the water and uh, buy a couple things to support the shop, because Lord knows they need the help usually. But... Uh, and while I'm buying those things, I'll ask them a few questions. And most fly shops, the people are great, and they're they're happy to help you out. And and uh, once if you're real nice to them, sometimes they'll tell you some water that they don't tell most people. But uh, local information, local, uh, it's pretty hard to beat local information. The, those people, especially in a fly shop, they probably fish that stream a hundred times, and maybe it's your first day there. So yeah, yeah I I really pepper them. <laughs> yeah, good, good. Uh, Andrew Stilitano um, in California wrote in, and he says, the salmon fly hatch is on my bucket list. Where would you suggest, like the Henry's Fork, time of year, river, rod, and what type of line to use? Would you use a drift boat or waiting by the shore? Thanks, Andy. So you wrote a book on this, right? Yeah, I'm sure glad he asked that question. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to have to send him a dollar for that. Um, yeah. I wrote a book called The Salmon Fly Dream Bug of the West, and it's just about the salmon fly. Well, it isn't. It's about the salmon fly and a much lesser known, but um, I'd say in general more important, 
equally huge, almost equally huge stone fly called the, the Golden Stone. Um, and anyway, uh, yes, yeah, so thank you for asking about my book, even though that wasn't his intention. But <laughs> as far as lines um, and all that, you know, there's the thing about the salmon fly is oh, I've had, a, a, I can remember one day in particular, it was unbelievable on the lower deschutes. I couldn't find a place. I'm not, this is not an exaggeration. I could hardly find a place where a trout could be that I could throw the fly without getting a strike. I just, I would throw it into white water and out would come a trout and uh, water that should never have been in or been able to go after a fly. And, and I'd throw it in places where I'd never caught a fish and I was catching fish. Unbelievable. The problem with the salmon fly hatch is that those days are not common at all. It, the salmon fly hatch, the fish can get pretty, pretty difficult. Uh, but when it's when it's good, if you have one of those rare days when everything's perfect, oh my God, uh, that day was very heavy overcast. It was kind of uh, muggy, even though that's a very dry area. It was uh, it was kind of it was perfect weather, really, and it was right at the perfect part of the hatch. And the next day, the sun came out. There were salmon, more salmon flies in the water, and I I caught very few fish. But uh, I guess the simple answer is expect that kind of. These are the two main things I would say about the salmon fly hatches. One. Definitely go. It's incredible. These huge bugs are fluttering around and, and landing on your hat, and and they they will bring up big fish, and you can have some really good fishing if your timing's right with a little luck as well. But the other thing that I think is key is keep an open mind, because just because sound flies are hatching doesn't mean the trout have completely given up on everything else. In fact, sometimes you may you may have trout up feeding on midges or pale morning dun mayflies. And that's what they want. They don't want a salmon fly. They're onto this other hatch. So have a, keep an open mind, and part of keeping an open mind is keeping open eyes, being observant. But go to the hatch, fish the hatch, and then be ready to change flies and tactics and everything else if the fish are on something else, which they often are during the salmon fly hatch. As far as tackle, uh, I like a six-weight rod because... Those are big flies to be throwing, and especially if you're throwing nymphs. They're big, heavily weighted nymphs. Stone flies live in fast water, or at least pretty quick water, so you have to have heavy nymphs to get them down there to the fish. Plus, uh, your nymphs are big anyway because salmon flies are huge. They can The body can be an inch and three-quarters long I mean, and, and corpulent, so your flies are too, and they're heavily weighted. Uh, so six weight, uh, I use fairly heavy tippet. Uh, I don't hesitate to use, if I can get away with it, I'll use 3x tippet and maybe a 9, nine foot 2x leader. And that's for both the, the nymphs and the adults because they're just big buggers. And if I were fishing yeah. a flat, which, you know, even though it's a fast water bug, they do end up on the slow water. So if you're fishing slow water, then the rules get a little different. You might have to go down in, in uh, diameter and use a longer leader and make more precise casts and all that, to, just to not to spook the fish and to convince it. So I think yeah. that answered his question, didn't it? Good. Yeah, yeah, close enough. He needs to buy your book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the best way to answer yeah, any yeah, question, yeah. buy my books, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tim uh, K. and it looks like uh, Kieser, Kaiser, Oregon, uh, he says, Skip, first, thank you for our, your meeting recently with Santium uh, Flycasters. I have tied uh, several sizes of the two patterns you demonstrated to us. Here's my fly tying question. Why are so many patterns tied on 2x long hooks? I do not see this as an issue with sizes larger than 14, but on the smaller size, why not tie one size larger? My understanding is that a 2x 
16 is the same length as a standard 14 in most brands, and it seems that a little more purchase on the larger eyed hook is a win-win situation. You know, I was just writing about this, and we had this system that somewhat complex, but probably about as, as, as effective as you could get it, in which the one thing, this is the way I see it, the one thing that determines the size of a hook was the gape. That's the dis distance between the shank of the hook, the, that's the straight part of if it's a straight hook, and the, the tip of the, the point of the hook. That distance, that, that gap or gape, I've heard it called both, that determined the size of the hook, and then the length of the shank would stay, would would change, but the hook size was the same. So if you have, for example, a, a size 12 standard length hook, that's going to have exactly the same gape as a size 12 1x long hook, but the 1x long hook is now about the size, theoretically, not necessarily because the hook companies don't necessarily stick with the rules, if there are rules, but this rule is sort of a rule. Anyway, so theoretically the size 12 1x long is going to be the same length as a size 10 standard length. And so then you take a size 12 standard length and you make it 2x long, that should be equal to the length of a hook, two sizes longer. But no matter how long you make the shank on a size 12 hook, it has that same size 12 gape. Now that made sense. So then the fly companies came out with wide gape hooks. Now what do you do? <laughs> you just, you know, good luck. But I think the answer as far as selecting hooks is that um, flies that are slender and that a fish might take quietly, you tend to use longer shank hooks, although that can also go for big flies, really big streamers and things, just the, kind of the opposite. But um, it just depends on how much gape you want in that hook, really. Uh, for most standard dry flies, you're going to use standard length or 1x long, same for nymphs. But if it's a really long nymph and it's not too fat, you might use a uh, long shank hook, just because, partly because your bite of your hook, your gape, is going to get so big that it could actually even injure a fish or they could have trouble getting into their mouths because of the hook. Hooks are tricky. To, picking a hook is tricky, so you, I think the wisest thing is either to fish a whole lot till you just kind of know, or you can trust uh, whoever's telling you how to tie the fly and what hook to use. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I suppose it does determine, like, some uh, flies, the body is thicker, which, uh, which takes up that space of the gape, and, uh, and consequently you might want a, a wider gape to make up for that, that that space that it's taking up, and, and then there's other really slim flies that, that don't interfere with the gape at all, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's why you don't really need, you know, you can go longer on things like coronamid imitations for lake fishing because they're slender, and even the beads yeah. are small, generally. Uh, yeah. That's not always true, but generally. But then you get to, or a damselfly, something like that, but then you get to something really fat like a caddis, you might want that shorter shank so that in relation to the hook's length, the gape is wider so that the fat body doesn't fill too much of it up. Yeah, yeah. Which exactly okay, what another... you just said, Roger. Yeah. <laughs> just what you said. I just said it just in a different what I way. Said. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, Maurice uh, Mahler uh, in New York wrote in and says, Dear Skip, about 30 years ago you built a beautiful six-weight rod for me. It's now in the hands of my grandson, so it still lives. I know you have fished more days than I have flies in boxes and closets. What was the most <laughs> challenging river or stream you faced? I know mine was the special section of the, of the Depuy uh, Spring Creek. 
the most pickiest rainbows I ever faced. I believe that. Now, I have never fished that Spring Creek. It's a, I believe it's a pay-to-fish Spring Creek in Montana. Uh, I just had a friend ask me about that the other day. He wants to go over there and fish that one or Armstrong's or one of those. Um, they're a little expensive for me and Carol to do, so we'd probably just do one day. But I would love to fish those. Um, I have wound up facing a whole lot of really, really, really smart, really cagey fish that have been caught and released a number of times, that have clear, slow water, that have lots and lots of food so they can afford to be picky and don't want to be caught again. I've run into this in, in streams, and I've run into it in lakes. I've especially run into it in ponds because trout in ponds are so they're captive in such a small area that they see a lot of if the fish, if the pond is fished much they see a lot of flies and get a lot of see a lot of their brothers and they get caught and themselves get caught and they get pretty tired of it and they get pretty wise to it but they probably that i'm going to guess i mean there there have been a lot of streams that were really challenging i mean the south platte in colorado smart fish smart fish and but um and there are others but i would say the two toughest that i have fished offhand would be uh See, maybe I'll make that three. No, I forgot one of them. Okay, the Latorte Spring Creek <laughs> Spring Run in Pennsylvania, and Silver Creek in Idaho, and Henry's Fork of the Snake in Idaho. Henry's Fork of the Snake is a huge spring creek, and the trout, they, they just come up, and it's, it's famous for this, and they just rise their little hearts out right in front of you, a pot of maybe 12, 15 fish, just slurping away, and you're 35, 40 feet away, a comfortable distance that you've crept out there, and you try every fly. You find that you start getting desperate toward the end, and you throw streamers, and, and everything you can think of, you've gone from, from 8X and size 24 or 26 flies up to these big nymphs and dry flies, and you just you stand there for an hour and a half, and that water's so cold because it's a spring creek, and you just won't leave because you you know they're feeding. And I, I've gone to Henry's Fork a number of times, and I've caught fish, and I've had one great day once, which I think the fish were just a little loopy or something, but um, it's it's a stream you work so hard to get a fish on. But the funny thing about it is you don't, they're, they're used to the anglers enough that you don't have to employ a great deal of stealth, and they're not real spooked by a cast because they're so far ahead of you. They just go, well, I was kind of a sloppy, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. shepherd's crook, and, and boy, uh, yeah. I, I don't think I'm going to fall for a miracle nymph again. I've done that. So... <laughs> It's, yeah, those three streams though; those are the toughest, I think. I think. Uh, okay, yeah, Silver Creek. I've heard a lot. I've never fished it, but I've heard it's really tough. And uh, <laughs> no, smart. you should listen to the interview I did with Doug Gibson. Doug Gibson mm. on Henry's Fork. Uh, Doug only uses like I don't know six or eight flies ever <laughs> on oh. Henry's Fork, and he puts wow. people in a fish every day. So, uh, uh, but he's also <laughs> been there. Or 56 years, so oh, <laughs> I guess he's got them, you know, he's got those fish figured out on the Henry's Fork, but I had a day like you had, too, on the Henry's Fork. It was not an easy day, so I can relate, but... Um, yeah, I've yeah. had one great day, and uh, the others were all a real challenge, at least if you're yeah. in that upper stretch. I've fished other stretches yeah. that aren't nearly as difficult, but that, yeah. the classic stretch up around Harriman Park and all that, uh, Yeah. Now, here's uh, one final question. It's, uh, um, Jim in Ohio says, in all seriousness, after reading your bio, have you ever gotten to the point where you thought you've seen it all and could be a minimalist? Uh, and how did that go? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm always kind of trying to get there. 
but uh, you know, new techniques keep popping up, and uh, and so then that requires you know different tippets and you know when when check nymphing got going or whatever you want to call it, contact nymphing, tight line nymphing, you know, the euro nymphing. But when that came yeah. out, then you had to have a cider, and you had to you know it was became not required, but uh, it did make a lot of sense to fish the check jig hooks, which are great actually. I love them, but check nymph jig hooks. And so this stuff keeps coming up, and I, I'm a little bit of a junkie for techniques. I, I really enjoy exploring them, and sometimes they really pay off. And then I fish so many different waters. I, you know, I, I, because I get a lot of stuff free by being on pro staffs, that really helps because I couldn't afford this. But I've got a vest downstairs for fishing trout streams, and it's got something like seven or eight packed fly boxes in it and all this stuff. I mean, it weighs a ton. But I've also got a box for sea run cutthroat. I've got a tackle box, a big tackle box that I bring to my trout lake fishing. I've got a, another, uh, it's a, what would you call it? It's a, a hip pack for fishing for smallmouth and streams. And the, the list just goes on. I mean, I have to have all that stuff because <laughs> I do all this different kind of fishing and to move everything around would just, I'd be spending all my time doing that. So yeah. no, I'm the opposite of a minimalist and it's not by choice. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's part of fly fishing. I mean, it's part of the fun, too, of learning new things, getting new things, tying new flies, trying new flies, trying new water. I mean, all of that is what attracts us, you know. So, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I would have a tough time being a minimalist, too. But um, about what, what I when, – when I'm a minimalist, it's taking my, uh, you know, five-year-old grandson down to the lake with some power bait and a bubble. That's my idea of being a minimalist. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, I've got the the whole nine yards around my neck, waist, or back, or wherever. So yeah, the fish good. make you Found do it. it. Yeah, the fish make you do it. There you go. Unless yeah. you're someplace where the fish are really easy going, and and then you can just pick out one fly and one line and one tippet and everything, and just go go off and catch fish every time. You mean like but the fish hatchery? I don't fish that kind of place that often. <laughs> or consistently. Like the fish hatchery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay. Streams where you could minimalize, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we got to wrap it up. Uh, it's been fun talking, and um, but uh, we got to close things off here and call it a night. Uh, so stick with me, though, uh, Skip. We're going to give away a few things, including your book. Um, and uh, we're going to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal and uh, your book, 500 Trout Streams. So hang tight, uh, and we'll do that and uh, close things off here. Reeling okay. and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, and a nature and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. To view their current wish list and to learn how you can support their retreats, visit fishon.org. That's fishon.org, or call them at 616-855-4017. That's 616-855-4017. 
And just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find the link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So it's now it's time to give away our prizes. Um, the winners for our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so that you can win a, one of these great prizes uh, then. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first, um, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to support and be part of. So our, uh, let me get my database going here. And uh, our first winner is Tom Meyer. Tom Meyer from Wisconsin. So congratulations, Tom. And I know you'll enjoy your membership and being part of FFI. Our second giveaway is a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Time Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com and see the other books that they have to offer on fly fishing there as well. And uh, our winner there is... Joe Branshaw, Joe Branshaw in Colorado. So congratulations, Joe. So uh, gentlemen, uh, I hope you enjoy your, your prizes, and we'll communicate after the show and make sure you get fixed up on both those uh, memberships and subscriptions. OK, now time to give away Skip's book. Now, bear with me on this, folks. If, again, you need to be in the US, um, and you need to be able to uh, you know, have a um, uh, Amazon.com subscriptions or memberships so that you can get this because what we're going to do is gift it to you on Amazon is what's going to happen. So don't play if if you're not going to be able to use it. Allow other people to uh, uh, that do have that um, allow them to to play and, and have the potential of winning Skip's book, 500 Trout Streams. So here we go. Um, so. Um, let me clear my queue here. You're going to answer this question on the home page of our website right there where you can, we're allowed to ask questions during the show. Sorry I saw more questions coming in, but we just ran out of time. And uh, uh, sorry we, we won't be able to, to get to all of those. Uh, but that's where you answer the question. And uh, during tonight's uh, talk, uh, Skip mentioned one author, Hag Brown, uh, many times that it's one of his favorite authors. Hag Brown is his last name. What's his first name? What's his first name? He didn't say that very often. So uh, uh, either you would have to have looked it up. Uh, nope. Uh, it is not Robert. It is not Robert. Uh, so the first uh, answer, Trig, sorry, buddy, it's not that one. What's his first name? And here we go. I think we got it, Skip. Uh, it's Roderick, right? That it is. That it is. Charles Card in Dutch John. Uh, I'm assuming that's uh, you topping the Green River, right? Sounds like uh, if it's the same Dutch John. Uh, and uh, congratulations, you just won the book. And uh, I know you'll enjoy it. And uh, good fireside reading, right, Skip? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, Charles, um, I have your email address there. 
If that's the email address for your Amazon account, then I'm good to go. If it's not, then send me your Amazon email address here uh, in the same place that you just answered the question. So uh, clarify that for me because we'll be uh, sending it to that uh, email address. So thanks. Congratulations. Thanks for paying attention or being fast on Google. <laughs> that's the other way to answer that really quickly. But uh, And thanks, everybody else who's played. I see there's a lot of, lot of answers coming in and a lot of correct ones, but the first one wins. So um, with that, uh, Skip, hey, I really appreciate you being with us again tonight, and this will make show number three, I think, or four. I can't remember how many we did. Uh, always a pleasure to talk with you and pick your brain, and uh, I love you sharing your experience and knowledge with us uh, every time we do this. So thanks so much. Well, it was really a pleasure, Roger, and thank you for having me back. It was a pleasure. Hopefully uh, all of you have found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look up for the link on the top line of our menu. Uh, go in there and search around. We've done over 330 shows, over 200 guests. Uh, search by keyword phrases like Trout, Tarpon, Madison River, uh, Deschutes River. I mean, just search away. You'll find all kinds of interesting uh, shows we've done over the past 14 years. So uh, check it out. Um, our next broadcast will be on March 3rd, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'm going to interview Bucky Buckstabber. Uh, and our topic for the show will be using fly fishing to help stop poverty and human trafficking. Bucky is the founder and executive director of Fly Fishing Collaborative. The collaborative has been mobilizing the fly fishing community since 2013 to create sustainable solutions to stop poverty and human trafficking around the world. This nonprofit helps communities build environmentally safe and sustainable aquaponic farms for orphanages and schools, preventing kids from entering human trafficking. Join us to learn how these farms are built and how you might be able to help the cause. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Douglas Outdoors, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget, um, if you want to join me on Clubhouse, I'll be there tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. If you need an invitation, want to join up, you have to have an iPhone, email me at roger at askaboutflyfishing.com. Again, roger at askaboutflyfishing.com. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Well,